opening up episode 294 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Siam Cat. It's from the Italian band Watang. The album is called Miss Wong. You can find them over at greencookierecords.bandcamp.com. Look them up on Facebook or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's the website for the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. Big thanks to the band Watang for letting us play their music on this week's episode of the podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the show. I'm excited because I've got an old friend coming onto the podcast this week. This old friend's name is Larry Underwood. You might know him as Dr. Gang Green. I know him as a big fan of all things anthology. He loves a good anthology portmanteau-style film. And this week, we are talking about the anthology film, The Uncanny. It comes from the 1970s. It stars Peter Cushing, Ray Milan, a couple of people that are Monster Kid Radio staples, as far as I'm concerned. Almost as much of a staple as Larry is himself. And I'm excited to get into that conversation. But first, we have some feedback to go over. Hey, Derek, Joe Lydon here. Just commenting on your last podcast. Uh, another great episode, man. Uh, you know, I'm embarrassed to say I have not seen any of Christopher Mims' mo- movies, but, you know, Based on the, your last episode and some previous ones that I've heard with you and him on, uh, I've got to track down some of his movies. They sound incredibly interesting, and I really want to check them out. And he had some great interviews on uh, on that episode. And, yeah, I, I'm going to definitely look, look into tracking some of his movies down in the next couple of days. Joe's referring to episode 291 that came out at the end of October. In that episode, I, I did very little, actually. I just took all the audio, edited it together, and made it sound smooth, which wasn't that hard because Rich Chamberlain and Steve Sullivan did a great job gathering audio from the premiere of Wereskito Nazi Hunter. Joe and anybody else who's not familiar with Chris's movies, I highly recommend the films of the Mimiverse. You know, I know there are a handful now, and it seems like there's more and more coming out of the woodwork of people who are making these retro-style movies, and I love most of them. But Mim's movies seem to be the most consistent, the most sincere, and the most enjoyable for me. And I'm not just saying that because he's a friend. In fact, I was a fan first. Then I became a friend. Now, Wereskito, it's the newest one right now. You can find it at Wereskito.com. It's like werewolf, except instead of a wolf, it's a skeeto, as in mosquito. You know what? I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And he's starting funding now for the next movie. And if you haven't seen the trailer yet for that, at least a little teaser, it's pretty cool. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well. Anyway, Joe continues. And in case you haven't seen Shin Godzilla yet, we do spoil a little bit in his voicemail and in my response. So heads up, spoilers ahead. But anyway, you mentioned Shin Godzilla. And I don't know if you're going to do an episode on it or not. But if you do, maybe you can just save this recording till then. If not, anyway, I'm a little surprised at how many people actually like this movie. I, for the most part, did not like it. Uh, I'm glad people liked it. I'm glad they saw something in it that I didn't. But, yeah, for the most part, no, I I did not like it. I was very disappointed. I thought this movie is just dogged down with way too much dialogue to the point where it brings the movie to a screeching halt in more than one spot. Uh, In my opinion, Godzilla doesn't have a heck of a lot to do. And... You know, there it was all his new powers and everything. I like that. I liked all of his new stuff that he could do, but um, I like the look of him, and and I I really did, and I thought the ending was really good. But I mean, all that said, I, I for the most part, I, I plan on sitting it, going to see it in theaters again, and 
decided not to because I don't think I could sit through it again in theaters. Uh, I was very disappointed in it. And I'm glad based on, you know, other podcasts I listen to, stuff I've read, that other fans like it. I'm glad they do. Maybe they see something and I don't. I don't know. But I tend to be very, very lenient on the genre cinema I, I, uh, that we like. And I'm, I give these movies a very, very wide berth. But this one, I couldn't. I, like I said, I just didn't, I didn't care for it. I, I thought I wasn't nuts about the way he morphed throughout the movie and changed forms and turned into that Godzilla. Um, that first version of him when he came up out of the bay, I just thought that was silly. You know, really silly. Um, yeah, I did. I was very, again, very disappointed in it. Now, the look of him grew on me. It really did. Uh, to the point where, I, to me, he looked like a zombie Godzilla. And I thought that might be one of the plot points in the movie. I, this is, I was just thinking this before I saw it. Maybe this is an undead version of Godzilla who has come back. You know what I mean? I think that might have been a neat way to go. Because um, he kind of looks like a zombie Godzilla, but that's not what they did. Uh, for the, like I said, for the most part, I was very disappointed, and I'm really surprised at how many people do like it. And I'm glad that they do. I'm glad that they do. Just because I don't like it, that doesn't mean anything. But uh, I was wondering, ask yourself this, because it sounds like you liked it too. If this was a totally American production with the exact same dialogue, the exact same uh, scene for scene, exactly the same, Exact same uh, Godzilla, exact same Godzilla screen time, everything the same except a totally American cast in a totally American production. Would you have liked it? In other words, if this was the film we got in 2014, would you have liked it? And I'm curious about that. Um, again, my answer would be no. I would not have liked it. But uh, anyway, those are just my quick thoughts on Shin Godzilla. I, uh, I don't know if you're going to do a show on it. I kind of hope you do, but I, I, I don't know if you will. But uh, anyway, anyway, another great episode, and uh, I look forward to looking into those Christopher Nim movies. Uh, you've given me another batch of movies to look at, so <laughs> I thank you for that. All right, Derek, take care. Bye. So I, I don't know if we're going to do a full-on episode of Godzilla or not. I, I, I might, but I've got a lot of stuff that I want to pack in before the end of the year. So by the time we get to it, well, I don't know, maybe if it comes out on Blu-ray here in the States, we'll tackle it anyway. So here's the thing. I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I respect your opinion, man. I really do. I know there are people out there who didn't like Shin Godzilla. I personally loved it. It was one of my favorite movies that I saw in a theater this year. And I think by the time the end of the year rolls around, it's still going to be up there in my top 10. You're right. There wasn't a heck of a lot of Godzilla action, at least traditional Godzilla action. But I don't think a Godzilla movie can be judged in terms of its worth based on how often Godzilla appears on screen. In fact, a couple of years ago, Andy Campbell of the Kaiju 101 podcast and then Keith Forrest of the Nerdometrics podcast did an episode where they broke down what the rating was of a Godzilla movie versus how often the monster appeared on screen. And this actually comes from an email that I got from Andy when I asked him about it. He says, quote, the results were that there was no relationship between screen time and the rating of the movie. There was actually a trend showing that the movies with the less screen time were better rated, but it wasn't statistically significant. In other words... More monsters do not make for a better movie. Now, he did tell me that he brought a stopwatch to Shin Godzilla. There's about 15 minutes and 56 seconds of Godzilla, which is about 14% screen time uh, for overall. So uh, do with that what you want. 
Also, it's interesting that you mentioned the word zombie when describing the look of one of the Godzillas there. So people who know me know that I used to produce a zombie movie podcast. And one of the things that I really championed about the best zombie movies out there is that the zombie movies that were really, really good weren't about the zombies. Zombies were being used as a metaphor. And I know it's kind of cliche to say now because Romero did that with Night of the Living Dead and at least his first three or maybe even four zombie movies. I suppose you could argue maybe the other two. Anyway, I feel like zombie movies were used as a metaphor to address certain things. And for years, I said that I thought it was just a matter of time before Japan made a zombie movie in reaction to either the 2011 earthquake, that the big one that hit the 9.1 magnitude earthquake, or the situation that happened at the Fukushima Daiichi, Daiichi, I probably am mispronouncing it, but the nuclear power plant where they had the problem there, you know, I know it was all kind of related, but uh, yeah, you know, I really thought that we were going to see a zombie movie out of Japan addressing these things, kind of talking about some of these concerns. I mean, there was a Japanese zombie movie called Hell Driver that came out in 2010, and it touched on some overpopulation concerns, which I would imagine being an island nation, that would be a concern. And, you know, if you go back and you look at the best zombie movies, you know, whether it's in Japan or wherever, you're going to see that. I feel like Shin Godzilla did what the zombie movies of the time did not do and addressed how the Japanese government addressed these issues, these problems, whether it's the earthquake or the power plant issue or just how the Japanese government operates. Now, I don't think it was being critical. It was just shining a light on it and using that to propel a narrative that was very, very dialogue heavy. Totally get that. Would I have liked this movie if it was the American movie? No, I wouldn't have. And, and because it just wouldn't have worked because it was so specific to the Japanese culture, the Japanese society, what was happening in the Japanese government, that sort of thing. It would be a completely different type of movie if it was done here in the States because our government works differently. And our reaction to the threat would have been, I'd say, substantially different. But, like I said, I respect your opinion. Ultimately, I think there's room for all different types of Godzilla films. If you count the American versions of the Godzilla films as separate from their original Japanese version, there's been over 30 Godzilla movies over the years, right? There are plenty of Godzilla movies for us to pick and choose from to say, this one is our favorite, that one is our favorite. I'm sorry Shin Godzilla didn't make it near the top of the list for you. You know, listeners, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about it. And, like I said... Maybe if this gets a home release here in the States, we'll tackle it here on the show proper. I know I've had a number of people on the show in the past who have talked about kaiju films with us here on Monster Kid Radio, and I would love to bring... You know what? Let's do this. Let's plan this right now. If Shin Godzilla gets a home release here in the States, why don't we plan a roundtable episode of some sort? It'll require some creative scheduling, but why don't we try to make that happen? And we'll talk about it here on Monster Kid Radio. I think it'll be fun. Joe, I really appreciate your feedback. Now, listeners, he sent that to us by email. He created an MP3 file, sent it to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You have another way to send feedback to the show, though, as well, and that's by leaving us a voicemail. Call us at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795. Ready? M K. R. Yeah, I thought I was pretty clever when I set that up. Anyway, I know the voicemail works because we got a voicemail from Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. Hey, Derek, it's Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. I uh, really enjoyed your episode uh, where you covered the uh, the Scarathon at the Joy Cinema. Man, I really wish I could go to something like that. We have nothing like that around here, which is just awful. But anyway, uh, you were talking about Blackula and the actor that played Dracula. 
in that movie and that he had a Star Trek connection. Well, he was actually in two episodes of Star Trek. He played Landrew, the very first computer uh, being that Captain Kirk destroyed in the episode Return of the Archons. And he also played Prefect Jarrus in one of our favorite episodes, Devil in the Dark. Uh, so he was, uh, he actually had pretty good roles in both those episodes. Uh, so that was a nice showing for him. And I actually liked him as Dracula too. He was a different take on Dracula. And I just love Blackula. That's just a, it's a great movie. It's got that 70s funkiness to it, but it really is a really good solid movie. And it, the first time I watched it a few years back, uh, in years, I, it really hit me that, man, this is a good movie. So, uh, you know, glad had great coverage and, uh, glad you had a great Halloween. We did here too. And, uh, Always looking forward to more Monster Kid Radio. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, so before responding to his voicemail proper, you know what? Chris did a bang-up job this past Halloween. Chris and Cindy, his wife, are the co-hosts of the Supermates podcast, like I said, and they did the House of Franklinstein for October, where they talked about a monster movie and then a comic book that had a connection to that monster movie. It's one of my favorite things that happens in October. I'll go ahead and say that now. I'm a big fan of it. Now, you can learn more about the Supermates podcast by checking out the Fire and Water Podcast Network. That's at fireandwaterpodcast.com. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well. There are a number of shows that are part of that network that I really enjoy, like the Supermates podcast, as well as a show called Gimme That Star Trek. And speaking of Star Trek, let's get to what he was talking about. So, he and I did a Star Trek episode here on Monster Kid Radio back in August. It was episode 282, where we did a top three list, our three favorite Star Trek monsters, and we mentioned the episodes that those monsters appeared in. And that was a blast. I love talking Star Trek. I really do. And to actually talk about it proper on Monster Kid Radio was a real treat for me. So, Chris, thanks for being part of that. I know I said it before. I'll say it again. And as far as Black Hill goes... It's so cool. I love that movie so much. I don't own it on Blu-ray yet. I need to pick it up on Blu-ray. Didn't it come out on Blu-ray with a double feature uh, with the sequel, Scream, Blackula Scream, which is actually really good as well. Almost as good, I feel like. It doesn't have Charles McCauley in it, unfortunately. At least I don't think it does. Charles McCauley is the man who played Dracula in Blackula. I didn't realize he had the two Star Trek connections. I suppose if I dug a little deeper, I would have found that and could have talked about it when I was hosting the movie at the Joy Cinema's Scarathon. That... Wow. Said it before. I'm going to say it again. The Joy Cinema knocked it out of the park, and big thanks to them for letting me be part of the show. By the time this episode goes out, I will have already introduced another movie at the Joy Cinema. Earlier this week, I introduced the 2007 movie Mill Massacres versus The Aztec Mummy. And while this episode will be going out after that event, I'm recording before the screening, and I can't wait to get there and don my luchador mask and talk about this movie as well. You know, listeners, if you have a local theater in your area, talk to them about doing an event like this. You know how I got involved with the Joy Cinema? I just asked. Really, I just asked Jeff Punkrock Martin, the guy who runs the place, if I can introduce the occasional movie. And that was it. I was in. And now when it comes to my movie memories, it's one of my favorite things to do, to introduce these movies and to meet people at these screenings and talk about these movies with folks. It's just a treat. You know what? I really recommend people try to do this if they can. And I was actually inspired to ask if I can be involved in the entire Scarathon event because this week's guest does similar things. He hosts movie marathons quite often in his area as Dr. Gene Green. I'm talking about Larry Underwood. He's a dear friend of me. He's a great friend of Monster Kid Radio. He's an excellent writer. I can't wait to talk about this week's movie with him. It's the movie The Uncanny. 
It's an anthology film. It stars Peter Cushing. It's from 1977, and it's coming up next, right after this. The coffin opens, and terror reaches out from beyond the grave. As the twins of evil evoke the power of vampirism and witchcraft. Twins of evil. They use the satanic power of their bodies to turn men and women into their blood slaves. Twins of evil. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parents. <sighs> well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire & Water Podcast Headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman invisible plane. Oh, jeez. Well, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed, no change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. the screen has never before dared to depict. The terrifying horror of man killing vine with a human brain that creeps and kills. The terrifying horror of the dead entombed for 200 years that creeps its way back to terrorize the living. The terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. When will man ever learn that when he pollutes the air and the water, he declares war against nature? American International Pictures presents Frogs, the story of the day nature strikes back. See Frogs in color, rated PG. Frogs, today the pond, tomorrow the world. You know, I would say that it's been too long since we've had Larry on a podcast. I mean, it's been a while since we've had him on Monster Kid Radio, but, man, he's been on the Nashy cast. He's been on a few other shows all over the place. Larry Underwood, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. Hey, thanks, man. Always good to be here. So it was the Nashy cast, and what was the other show you did recently? Well, it's one of the podcasts that Kurt Larson does. You know, the guy does just a ton of podcasts anyway. It's called These Are Daddy's Toys, and this okay. is a new one because he's a new parent, mm-hmm. and... You know, his son was just born this year, so he's talking to different people about their experiences when their kids were younger. And, of course, it's been a while since my kids were were young, but 
he just wanted to kind of fill out since it was Halloween time. He's asked me questions about what did you used to do? How, what did you think about letting your kids watch scary movies? What's your advice to other parents? That kind of thing. So it's kind of a whole different angle and kind of fun to talk about something different. Right on. Yeah. And you did uh, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde on uh, the Nashi cast, which is just a trippy movie anyway. You know, it's, it's <laughs> definitely low budget. But and it's, it's a lot of time fun. for sure. It's a horror movie. It's black exploitation. Bernie Casey is Dr. Black. Hiya, Doc. No, you can't try that. Ceremony. Ah! A monster he could not control had taken over his very soul. A screaming demon rages inside, turning him into Mr. Hyde. This is no nightmare, Doctor. You're real. Super strong, supernatural, and super bad. That's a cross between the abominable snowman and Willie the werewolf. Indestructible. Nothing can stop it. Not bombs, bullets, or bulldozers. No man alive could take that guy, but he's on his feet when he hits the street. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. Honestly, it's got more going for it than people give it credit for. I mean, it's it's kind of got some cool themes going on mm-hmm. and, you know, it kind of explores race relations, class relations, and got a cool monster, Bernie Casey. So <laughs> cast is good in it. Bernie Casey's great. How's everything else going? I mean, it's, it's been so long since we've had you on the show. I mean, you and I talk off and on, off mic through email or whatever, but we haven't had you on our show for a while. What else is going on in the world of Dr. Gang Green right now? Well, I am just approaching the 1970s on my Vincent Price series. So I'm shooting the last of the 1960s this weekend, then moving on into the 70s, which he, I love the Price films of the 70s. He did some some fun stuff, the Fives movies, Theater of Blood, Madhouse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it was inevitable. For years, Vincent Price has played the role of Dr. Death. For years, he has pretended to be a hideous, murdering monster. Now, he has actually become one. American International presents Vincent Price in Madhouse. Madhouse, where lunacy lives, fear lurks, evil walks, and death waits. Madhouse, an endless nightmare from which there is no return. Madhouse, a cinematic shock treatment guaranteed to scare you out of your mind. No one ever leaves Madhouse. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Really solid movies in the 70s. I've been writing, did some more short stories, been submitting those places, and, you know, just staying busy, uh, doing some other YouTube stuff, did a little giveaway at at Halloween, which was fun. And I think I'm going to do another one for November. I've got a a Fright Rags t-shirt. They had one of their... uh, sales where they were getting rid of some of their overstock stuff and you just you don't know what you're getting so I, I bought three or four of them and thought i'll just save one of these to giveaways at some point so and you've been doing some short movie stuff too right i have we have turned a couple of my scripts into short films that uh local filmmaker cameron mccaslin and i have been working on and they will all come together into an anthology film hosted by dr gang green next year nice 
that's been a lot of fun. We uh, dug a six foot hole, got a backhoe back there and had them dig a <laughs> six foot hole for one of the stories uh, about some grave robbers. At your place? They did it at your house? Did it at my mom's house. Oh, which, even better. <laughs> yeah, really close. I called her up to mom. Can we dig a hole at your house? She's like, come on. Told her what we were doing. She's like, yeah, go ahead. Right on. <laughs> she's got a little more land than I do. It's, she's kind of out in the country a little bit. I'm, you know, I've got neighbors and dogs and everything else here. It just, it wouldn't work. Do your neighbors know that you're Dr. Gingrino? They know about the horror hosting? Yes. One of my next door neighbors does a podcast and I was just on his podcast uh, doing an <laughs> unboxing video this week also. It's it's called Four Letter Nerd. It's his podcast. When he moved in, I went over to introduce myself. Say, hey, I'm I'm your neighbor. Nice to meet you. And he kind of looked at me, and he said, "Are you Doctor Gangrene?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." He said, "Dude, I grew up watching your show." Oh wow! <laughs> so yeah, now that that make makes you feel old. But no, no, no. I appreciate it. It's yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. And uh, he's he's fun. He's great. The rest of my neighbors are kind of hit and miss, but so it's not like he would, you know, bat an eye at you digging a hole in the back. I was like, oh, it's Gang Green, just oh, no, digging a grave in his backyard. Help. You know, it's like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think they would all at this point. They all know. They would all expect it. Well, man, it's, you've been busy and you know enjoying Halloween. I'm you know, we're recording this after Halloween. You know, how did Doctor Green Green celebrate Halloween? Man, we're real traditional around here. Mm-hmm. So made a pot of chili. Handed out candy to trick-or-treaters. We had a fire bowl going. Even though it was hot out, we still set the fire bowl out, got a little fire going, and handed out candy to trick-or-treaters and sat outside with my son and uh, had a little music going. Had Zachary, had the Halloween Hootenanny compilation from Rob Zombie's Halloween Hootenanny playing, hosted by Zachary, who passed away this month, unfortunately. Yeah. Which was a kind of a bummer, but, you know, not unexpected at age 98 i think mm-hmm. i just talked to him a few months ago i called him on a saturday afternoon one day to get a quote for a scary monsters article i was writing he was home watching a baseball game and you know chit-chatted with him for a little bit such a great guy and true professional you know yeah it's a shame um to have that happen right before halloween too and, and like you said you know it's a good long run a good long run and I, I never had a chance to meet him, but from all accounts, I mean, people, people like you, all the interviews that I've, I've read with him, seeing him in different videos and things, seemed like just a super nice guy and, and willing to chat with pretty much anybody about the craft that you horror hosts are involved with. And it's everything else, too, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was just the nicest guy and just, like I said, a true prof- professional and, and the best that he was. I mean, he, he set the mold. Joe Bob Briggs wrote a real nice article that I read just this morning, a real ni- nice tribute to him. And and he talks about in there the same thing that I'm saying, that, you know, Zachary was was the guy that made the mold that everybody followed. You know, he's he's it. He's the best, pure and simple. I read that this morning, too, actually. Uh, Tiki Mag, is that the name? Or Taki Mag? I'm, I'll, I'll try to find a link for that and put it in the show notes. But I did just read that and uh, – Called him the first and, and spent a few paragraphs talking about how Vampire was great, but you know, Zachary is the one who kind of set the path for modern horror hosts, basically. So. Well, he did. And and you also got to remember that nobody modern, nobody that's right. hosting now saw any of Vampire's stuff because it's not preserved. What we saw, though, and the influence we all felt was from Zachary. Zachary's the mm-hmm. one that 
did the cut-ins in the movies and dressed in the long black coat and the makeup around the eyes and all the stuff that all the hosts picked up on. He he was iconic. He hosted American Bandstand. He hosted his own disco team. He did the show as Roland and then later as Zachary and it was legendary. Yeah, I, I mentioned this on Facebook. Uh, my my first exposure to him, and basically my first exposure to you know the breadth of horror hosting in general. Because I mean, I think we all knew Elvira, but I didn't realize there were so many others out there doing that thing. Because I didn't have a horror host growing up. When I discovered the VHS Horrible Horror with Zachary, mm-hmm. it was given to me, I believe, as a birthday present from my little brother. And I watched that VHS over and over and over again. I'd loan it out to friends. Say, you got to watch this. You got to watch this. Because I, I just didn't get it until I saw that. No, I think that that was an introduction to Zachary for a lot of people. I've got three copies of it myself. Someone gave me a copy for my birthday. I'm like, great. <laughs> <laughs> right on. <laughs> you can't have enough copies of Horrible Horror. Well, you know, you're going to wear one out eventually, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. And I put it out on DVD recently and... Added some extras to it, but I don't I don't have that yet. So. I have it on DVD because I don't know what happened to the VHS. It's not around here anymore. But it came out on DVD, and I, I had to get it. So, yeah, I grabbed it. It's a two-disc set. And, uh, yeah, I've watched it quite a few times since. Mm-hmm. I went to a VHS tape swap here a few weeks ago in Nashville, something that one of the Belcourt staff was doing. And they put it together at Third Man Records, which is Jack White's little studio here in Nashville. And... So it was on Friday night, went down there. But one of the things they had playing on the screen when I first walked in was Zachary's Horrible Horrors because it was the day after he passed away and it was the next day. Mm-hmm. And so they had that playing when I walked in. And so it was nice. Very cool. Well, not cool that he passed. Well, you know what I mean. It was a nice tribute. Very fitting. Yes. Very fitting. And, you exactly. know, he hosted a few other documentaries out of War Models documentary mm-hmm. that came out. I mean, just good stuff. And yeah. uh, like you said, a lot of it's been preserved, so we can still enjoy his work years after you know, he stopped doing regular horror hosting. It's all out there. Well, there's so much of it out there for us to enjoy now, and the music and, and everything else. I mean, it's the stuff. Mm-hmm. It really is the stuff. Yeah. Well, hey, I didn't want to bring it down, man, by going down that path. <laughs> <laughs> I think I brought up Zachary. But it's well, you, you can't talk horror hosting <laughs> it's not without. My fault. Well, you can't talk horror hosting without having you know the, the, the connection to Zachary is so deep and, and so important. And you know, as far as what we do here on Monster Kid Radio, if it wasn't for that, I don't know if I'd be as uh, you know on this path because that VHS influenced me so much. So, you mm-hmm. know, shout out to to Zachary. Absolutely. So, can we give a shout out to the movie we're talking about this week? Yeah, let's do it. We're going <laughs> to uh, tackle another anthology film. One of my favorite, favorite subgenres. Probably my number one favorite subgenre. You love these anthologies, these portmanteau films, and you're a big fan of Amicus. I am, although this is not an Amicus. This one is an Amicus? I thought it was. It's got Amicus ties to it, but it's okay. not actually an Amicus film. It's actually a Canadian-English kind of co-production. Hmm. It was actually made by a company called Astral Films in Canada, and the Rank Organization in England distributed it. And the Rank Organization, they did Vampire Circus in 72, Countess Dracula 71, Twins of Evil. That's them. They're the guys that distributed that stuff. Yeah, I saw the Rank Organization. I thought, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's British horror. Of course they're involved, so it must be Amicus. And then I saw Milton Zabotsky's name turn up you mm-hmm. know, as one of the producers. I'm like, oh, it must be Amicus. Huh? I, I'm, wow. Yeah. See, this was the first time viewing for me, so 
see, that's where the whole Amicus tie comes in. It definitely has, it has a bunch, as we'll discuss throughout this. It has a lot of ties to Amicus, mm-hmm. but it's not actually an Amicus, but it does feel like an Amicus. But when you and I were talking, you had read me and said, man, we got to have you back on. What would you like to talk about? I mentioned this film to you mm-hmm. primarily because I knew you were a cat guy. You're right. a cat lover. And how many cats do you guys have? Well, right now we have three, but we've had up to five in the home before. Nice. So what are your cat's names? <laughs> so we have Lovey, who spent a big chunk of Halloween watching movies with me. She's my little movie watching buddy this year. Uh, we have Smoke and uh, Sam, who came from my grandparents when they passed. We, we took Sam home with us. And bringing her home on the airplane was, was an adventure. But uh, otherwise, she's done just fine here. So I can imagine. Yeah, when we took her through security at the uh, <laughs> Phoenix airport, that yeah, was an exciting time. Uh, the TSA people made Brenda hold the cat, but not move the cat anywhere near them. And they wanted to swab her. And because apparently Sammy looked like a little terrorist, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was just an exciting time for Sam. But, That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. But now they're doing okay. They're doing okay. Lovey's 19, but you know, she's our little golden girl. So 19, man. That's, that's, I mean, I know cats can live a long time, but that's but, pretty, yeah. That's, that's up there. She's hitting there. She's hitting yeah. there. Well, congratulations to Lovey. Well, none of them watched The Uncanny with me. So <laughs> I don't want to give <laughs> them any probably ideas. probably a good thing because it could traumatize them. Well, I'm a dog guy and uh-huh. I have three dogs, mm-hmm. but I have had cats over the years and we had two back in the 90s, I guess. Uh, I mean, 2000s rather. Um, well, no, 90s into 2000s. And we had a, a yellow and white cat named Sarah who we thought was a girl, but turned out was a was a boy. So we had a boy named Sarah. <laughs> we thought about renaming him, but the name was there. It stuck, you know. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, we'll just change it to Sahara, right? Nah, that didn't work. Okay. <laughs> so we had a boy named Sarah. Well, I actually have I've had three cats. I forgot about Astray also. We had a so then we had a little black kitten that turned out some cat had gotten under our front porch, concrete porch had gotten in through the little vents and had kittens, but left this one stranded. Oh. And it was a little black cat that I named Wolfgang, who was <laughs> absolutely insane. The cat, I mean, I think being abandoned, it was covered in fleas. I oh, mean, no. covered in fleas. We got it washed off and kept kept the cat, but it um, it was not right. <laughs> the cat was just not right. And then we had a, uh, a a stray, a white cat that showed up that I named Whitey, who stayed with us for a while and then and then eventually left. I just thought it would be funny to open the door up and say, Whitey, get in here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've had a few cats over the years. There is no shortage of monsters to haunt our dreams. Like the creature from the Black Lagoon, deadly aliens from outer space. Giant ants, man-eating sharks, and bloodthirsty grizzly bears. But the most fiendish, the most fascinating, the most terrifying creature of all may be waiting for you round the next corner. Or living right in your own home. Years ago, people used to believe a cat was the devil in disguise. I'm beginning to think they were right. (laughs) No, 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 cat! 
I said scream. Do you call that a scream? Those are spikes, real spikes coming towards you. I just don't feel scared. I will show you what terror means. How are you going to convince the people what you're writing about is true? I had access to the police statements and the doctor's report on the bodies. Believe me, I do know what happened. of them everywhere spying on us watching waiting when will they pounce now i've seen the trailer for the uncanny a few times because it gets played at the uh, hollywood theater whenever they bring in one of their grindhouse screenings they'll a lot of times put grindhouse trailers at the beginning of the film and i've seen this one a few times chris mcmillan who's been on the show a few times as well saw it we were trying to track it down and i was able to track down the the movie i just never got around to watching it Mm -hmm. i mean i started to it's like you know i'm just not feeling it right now so i'm gonna hold off and then you brought it up. I'm like, okay. Now, now I can't watch it until uh, we get Larry on the show to talk about it. T- I got to tell you, man, um, I have a hard time with cats and movies. I-, I love cats. I'm a huge cat person. I didn't grow up loving cats. You know, it wasn't until you know I got older and, and met one a few years ago that you know I'm now a cat person through and through. But whenever I'm watching a movie with a cat, I spend the whole time worrying about that cat. <laughs> well, especially back. When they're older movies and you know that, the, yeah, you know, the, the regulations weren't as strict. Yeah. So I, I you got cats being, I mean, have you ever seen 90 of a thousand cats? Yeah. And they're, they're throwing this cat. They threw this yeah. one poor cat probably 20 feet in the air. Yeah. There's some of that going on in this, although not quite to that extent, but there's a little bit of that going on in this too, but not to the point that I think any of them were hurt. I don't think so in this one, but I do know there have been some films, especially, you know, you get older and, in other countries, you know, it, it's it's tough, and I, I cringe and I'm like, okay, don't don't do that to the cat, don't do that, to, you know, because I'm not such a cat guy, and sometimes it takes me out of the story so much that it just, I love cats, but cats and movies just. Mm. This yeah. one, you know, I did have a little bit of that, especially during the first sequence, but we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Now, okay. had had you seen this this one before? No, I had watched it once before, okay. and so this was a rewatch for me, yeah. Okay. My copy was the uh, Sinister Cinema copy. The, that's where my copy came from. It wasn't the best print in the world. I'd like to get a better print of it. But, yeah, this was a second time through for me. I think there's a Region 2 DVD. Well, there, I know there's a Region 2 DVD. That's how I have it. Uh, so if you can play a Region-free or multi-region DVDs, it is available over in the U.K., or at least it has been in the past. 
Cool. So you can get it that way. The theme of this one, the thing mm-hmm. that strings them all together is cats. For our viewers out there, that's why we're talking about cats so much. And it's interesting, for sure. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> so, well, it's just an interesting theme to come up with to, to string them together. Because so many of these of these anthologies have, they always have the story that ties together all the various shorts. But they're never all about a single theme. Right. But I find that that's the interesting thing about this movie, I, to, to elaborate a little more on that comment, is that it is kind of cool that they're all cat-centric stories. Sure. Whereas sure. like in Dr. Terror's, you've got, they're all over the place. A werewolf, a, a killer plant story, a, a vampire story. But this is, they're all cats. Yeah. And Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, we've talked about here on the show. And it's, for my money, it's, it's probably my favorite anthology style movie. Although I do like uh, Tales from the Crypt an awful lot, the first. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's that too, huh? Yeah. We'll have to talk about that one sometime. We need to do an anthology show, just like do our top three. And just yeah. At some point. Anyway. Yeah. But this one, yeah, it is all tied together by cats. I think the connecting story is a little, it's probably the weakest of the of stories in this. Mm-hmm. Peter Cushing doesn't like cats. <laughs> and he wrote a book <laughs> about it. Boom, moving That's on. That's right. Yeah, there Peter Cushing, he's one of our guys. I wouldn't say he's the – him and Ray Milan. I wouldn't say they're the lead, but they're probably the biggest names in the film. Uh, they're yeah, just not on screen Pleasance. very often. Yeah, and Donald Pleasance, yeah. Think about that right there, your cast. All right, we're going to have an anthology film. We've got Peter Cushing, Ray Milan, Donald Pleasance. I'm in. Sure. You know, take my money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Peter Cushing can do no wrong. Well, you, we're on Team Cushing. I mean, everybody knows that now at this point, I hope. Sure. <laughs> if, if they've been paying attention, they know. Probably been a while since you've done a Cushing film. You no, know, it has. And 1951 Down Place has kind of fizzled for a little while. So I don't get my Cushing on as often as I'd like. Mm-hmm. So it was good to have that. And, yeah. you know, he's. I'm sure he shot his sequences over the course of a day or two. But again, he's a professional. He creates a character that's totally believable and he's just engaging and fun to watch. Definitely. Definitely. And Ray Milan, you know, I, I've talked about X, the man with the X-ray eyes recently here. Well, relatively recently here on the show. And just Ray Milan's great. Yeah, he, he's always good. And what I love about about him being in this movie is he's he was in this movie, which is cat-centric, and he was also in Frogs. Which <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the killer frogs. So. Hey, we got this uh, Nature Attacks movie. Call up Ray. <laughs> <laughs> I love that we can talk about an Academy Award-winning actor on Monster Kid Radio and not even bat an eye. It's great. Yes. You know, we got Ray Milan doing these movies, and uh, I mean, he, he lent those considerable talents to handle these genre films. And to have him in this, he plays the agent. Is he the agent or the publisher? He is the publisher. Okay. And Cushing's going to pitch his new book to him. Cushing, by the way, his uh, character's named Wilbur Gray, which is, of course, the same name as Costello's character in. <laughs> Having Costello meet Frankenstein. That, that wasn't intentional, was it? I, I, I can't I imagine it was. I don't think it was. I think it was completely unintentional, but I think it's completely hilarious, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, chick. <laughs> chick, 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 chick. Right well, on. Yeah, so Wilbur Gray is, is this nervous, twitchy guy who has allurophobia, fear of cats. And he is looking out his window, and he's going out, and he's got to, you know, he's got to walk across this dark, you know, Canadian city to get to his publisher's house and um he sees cats hears cats following him and he's you know he's nervous he's not he's not too happy and we get there he his uh ray milan is his is his um publisher and he's he's like so you're going to publish the book and ray said no i didn't say i would publish it i'm I'm listening to what you have to say you know we learned that 
the previous stories that Cushing has published were on subjects such as UFOs and pyramids. So this is kind of a, a guy who specializes in these superstitious kind of things, you know, these other these topics like this. And his new theory is that cats have controlled mankind for years. They're mm-hmm. an evil force. They're, they're manipulative. And this is kind of like an expose, a true life story kind of book. And he's got several stories that he's going to tell to Ray Milan to sort of punctuate and to prove his theory. That's the framing sequence for this. Mm-hmm. And we get three stories out of the deal that take place uh, in different parts of the world, different time periods. Let's see. The, the story, the movie itself came out in 1977, but the three stories in this take place, what, in uh, like early Hollywood in the 1930s and then just a couple of years prior to the film. Right, right. So, yeah, the first one's London, 1912 is the first one. Then you get Quebec, 1975, and then Hollywood, 1936, or three stories. And as soon as the Hollywood 1936 popped up, I'm like, ooh, okay, I, I'm on board because I love old Hollywood stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was I was ready to enjoy that piece the most. I'll, I'll wait till the till later to tell you which one I liked the best, but it wasn't that one, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Although it's got some fun stuff in oh, it. Oh, it's good, good. I I I, yeah. st- I enjoyed all three pieces. I just enjoyed one a little bit more than the others. Gotcha. The first one, uh, London, nineteen twelve, is a story of a rich woman named Mrs. Malkin who. Changes her will, cuts out this greedy nephew who was in her will, but had, as she said, spent enough for money, squandered enough for money. She wasn't going to give him any more. He's angry about it, and he is having an affair with her maid. So the two of them plot together to steal and destroy copies of her will, and that way it would revert back to the previous will, and he'd still get the inheritance. So that's sort of the story for that one. What's interesting about that, and I know I sent you a trailer for this, is that that is very similar to a movie from 1969 called Eye of the Cat, mm-hmm. which was written by the script for that one by Joseph Stefano, who wrote the screenplay for Psycho. Oh, okay. That one also has a story about a man and his girlfriend who plan to rob the mansion of the man's eccentric but wealthy aunt. However, the aunt keeps dozens of cats in her home as does the woman in the first story here. And the man has allurophobia, is deathly afraid of cats. The elderly rich woman, Miss Malkin, in this story also has a house full of cats, like probably, I don't know, 50 cats or something. Yeah, quite a few that they refer to, or she refers to as the, the ones who have given so much. You know, the, the nephew, he's he doesn't pay any attention to her, but the cats, they're the ones who have been loyal. Right, so she leaves all her money to her cats. I forgot to say that. That not only does she cut her nephew out, she's leaving it all to her cats. Mm-hmm. Eye of the Cat, from 1969, is also similar to another movie called Shadow of the Cat from 61, a Hammer movie. Have you guys done this on Down Place? I uh, have not. That one is about a female house cat who sees her mistress murdered by her husband and two servants and becomes ferociously bent on revenge. Oh, wow. Okay. So you got this kind of cat theme. I have to think that the producers of this movie being British, were aware of those other two films. And both of those stories are so similar to this first story that it had to have been influential to this one. You'd think. Now, Sabotsky, he, he wasn't British, but a lot of the crew and, and people involved were. So, yeah, I would imagine. But Sabotsky, cats are sort of a theme that run throughout his history because what's interesting about him is, of course, you've got this movie, but he was also a producer on Cat's Eye from 1985. Oh, was he? 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. So he was producer of that, and he was also producer on Torture Garden from 67, which has a segment about a cat in it. It's a theme that I think he returned to time and again. And, you know, that one's about a cat that possesses a man. It makes him go out and kill. Have you seen Torture Garden? I have. And that's, that's, uh, that one's not Amicus either, is it? Or am I? That is an Amicus. It is Amicus. Okay. See, I, I don't know the Amicus the way Larry does. <laughs> but yeah, so, so cats are something with, with him being the central figure that ties all those together. It makes me think that maybe cats were something that Sabotsky sort of was into. So, hey, man, put a cat story in there. Although in Cat's Eye, they're definitely the heroes. So they're not always the villains in these films. Well, you know, really, I would even go as far as saying the cats and the uncanny, while they might do some terrible things to people, it's not without, as far as I'm concerned, valid motivation. Right. I don't know right. if I'd call them villains or not. No, they're antiheroes. I'm going to call them the antiheroes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so getting back to this one, this lady, Miss Malkin, so she changes her will. And by the way, about Miss Malkin, so indulge me for a minute and let me go down a rabbit hole here. Oh, please. Because I started researching this, and then one thing led to another and led to another. So I've, I found some cool stuff that sort of relates to the movie, sort of doesn't, but it's it's all fascinating. So Miss Malkin, the name Malkin, mm-hmm. is sort of a, a take off the name Grimalkin. Now, Grimalkin is sort of a combination of the word gray color and, and the word Malkin. Now, Malkin is it's an ancient term with several meanings, meaning a cat, a low-class woman, and a weakling, among other things. Okay. Scottish legend makes reference to the Grimalkin as a fairy cat that dwells in the highlands. The term name may first come from a English novel called Beware the Cat from 1570, made by a printer's assistant and poet named William Baldwin. Beware the Cat is notable as the first horror fiction text longer than a short story, and it has been claimed by academics as the first novel ever published in English. The story for that one is an anthology story framed by a first-person narrator named Master Streamer on a cold Christmas night who recounts a complex cycle of interweaved stories to his two friends. These stories feature a version of The King of the Cats, an Irish werewolf, the Grimalkin, a Highland fairy cat, and an underworld society of talking cats, among several other horror and magical supernatural elements, such as an ancient book of forbidden lore and magic potions. <laughs> wow. All of that's interesting in that tonight's movie is not only about cats, but it also has witchcraft in one of the segments. It does. And going even further, looking at the name Malkin, I found that there was an alleged witch's coven in English legal history that took place in a place called Malkin Tower. On April 10th, 1612, eight of those attending were subsequently arrested and tried for causing harm by witchcraft. Seven were found guilty and executed. So that name Malkin, Grimalkin, that just keeps coming up over and over through history. I have to think that the writer of this, it makes you wonder if he wasn't aware of that and used that name in the story because it just is so appropriate. I would think so. And even, I mean, it would have to be, right? I mean, how how do you come up with that and not... Exactly. A lady who has a whole house full of cats that are going to get revenge for her death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a perfect name. So I thought that was very clever. It kind of raised my estimate of that story a little bit. Yeah. So anyway, that going down the rabbit hole there for a minute, one one thing led to another. I was like, this is all fascinating, and it all has to do with cats. I've got to bring all this up. Yeah, so what what's the rabbit hole equivalent for cats? Cats don't have like a cat hole. Where, where do they hang out? 
I don't know. Let me indulge me with the catnip. I, I've got no, there. You go. There you go. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So in this story, so the 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 maid goes to steal one uh, copy of the of the will out of the lawyer's briefcase when he's not looking. The second one is locked up in a safe, so she gets the combination, and the old lady catches her getting it out, and she winds up having to murder the old lady. So, yeah, so the cats go to get revenge, and this is where, you know, they, they attack the, the maid, and this is where you get your cats thrown repeatedly at the woman. Yeah, and like you said, that's where I start cringing. She's like, no, don't hurt the cat, you know? <laughs> I'm such a sap. I'm such a cat person when it comes to this kind of thing, and... I just I find myself on the edge of enjoying the movie, enjoying the story for what it is, and worrying that they're going to hurt a cat. <laughs> Come on, I don't think anybody was hurt. Like we talked about this earlier, I don't think anybody was hurt. Any cats were hurt in the production of this film. Uh, they do toss a few cats at the person, and she, the actress, uh, what's her name, uh, Janet. She does seem to do a pretty good job of catching all the cats appropriately, so nobody's hurt. <laughs> but yeah, the cats really let her have it and lock her into the pantry. Or yeah, she corner has to her into the run it. Yeah, corner her there. She runs and hides. And and what's interesting is she winds up having to eat cat food in order to survive for the three days that she's locked in there. That jar of stuff she gets down is is cat food that we see her feeding to the cats earlier. So yeah, that's kind of cool. This is kind of silly in this segment in that three day span of time the cats become so ravenous, so hungry they wind up eating their <laughs> their mistress's body. Kind of silly, you know, in three yeah. days. Time, I they, think the time passing in this is a little odd. The way they do it, it's a little weird. Mm-hmm. When she pulls out the bread and she starts eating the bread, I'm like, uh, why is she doing that? I don't understand. Oh, we're supposed to see the time is passing. I get it now. But it wasn't enough time for them to strip Miss Malkin's <laughs> body down to the bone to eat her. <laughs> well, you do have 50 cats. And well, I that's guess, true. I you know, maybe the maid had not been feeding them as, as regularly as she's supposed to, but – now nah, it's kind of a little silly, but but nice and gruesome mm-hmm. and makes for an effective shock, I guess, when she finally gets out of the room a couple, few days later and goes up to get the, the last wheel, which has been dropped on the on the ground. And once again, she gets attacked by the cats. Back for more. When her nephew does show up as well, the cats get him, too, and it's a little bit more quick for him. You know, every story... When it ends, we go back to where Peter Cushing and Ray Milan are chatting. It's usually Remeland telling Peter, well, it could have happened this way. Of course, that was in the paper, but nothing was confirmed or, or something along those lines. Yeah, he's the realist. He's yeah. not really buying this. And he's Cushing's trying to pitch this theory to him. He's, he's convincing him. He, he wants him to publish his, bu- his book, his paper. You have to warn everybody. Yes. Now, did we mention that Ray Milan has a cat as well? The publisher, Frank Richards, has a cat named Honey. Is it sugar. honey or is it honey or sugar? Sugar. It's a white cat. Yes. At one point, he he lets sugar outside, and you see sugar walk up and, and rub noses with another cat, which sends Cushing, who's watching out the window, sends him into a frenzy. He's he's talking. He's he's talking to another cat. You know, he he, <laughs> he knows that these things are, can communicate with one another. They're, they're conspiring against us. They're out there. You yes. have to see. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yep. At which point, Milan's just like a whatever. You know? Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Tell me another story. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the the second story is is the one that takes place in Quebec, seventy five, two years earlier, to when this movie came out. It's an interesting story. It's about a orphan girl who's sent to live. Her parents are killed in a plane crash, so she's sent to live with her uncle, who has a wife that's very mean and mean to the the little girl. The only thing she has is she has a pet cat 
named Wellington and a photo of her mom and some books. And mm. uh, the books happened to be books on witchcraft. Her mom was practicing witch. Well, you wouldn't have a movie in the 1970s, a horror movie in the 1970s that didn't have witchcraft in it, right? <laughs> That's right. Got to have very 70s. So the aunt has a, a daughter who is also very mean, takes after her mom, a daughter named Angela. She's a little snit. She is. That girl, the little girl that plays Angela, is named Chloe Franks. She is an amicus regular who was in a couple of really cool movies. She was in The House That Dripped Blood in 71 and Tales from the Crypt in 72. In Tales from the Crypt, she's the little girl that lets Santa Claus in. Oh, no. <laughs> in, the, in the segment and all through the house. She's the one that opens the door and lets Santa Claus in. In... House that drip blood. She's the little girl that kills Christopher Lee with voodoo. Oh, really? Yeah. Which one came out first? First was House that drip blood. Okay. Then you had Tales from the Crypt in '72, and then this movie in '77. So, kind of cool that. And I think it's interesting that she was the little girl with the voodoo doll in the other movie, and she's sort of the victim of witchcraft in this movie. Yeah. So, kind of gets her. Guess on both sides of it, there gets her come up. It's in this one. She's uh she's not nice at all. She no. is very jealous of the young of the new girl and and her cat. And the cat don't want anything to do with her, which just makes things worse. You don't belong here. She says a couple of times to to her to her I guess cousin, right? And they're cousins at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't belong here. You're not supposed to be here. And I'm taller. I'm bigger than you. So you have to do what I say. I want to play with Wellington now. I'm going to make you do all these things. It's not a very happy life for our young orphan. And of the three stories, I mean, we'll get to it, I'm sure. But this one, I think, was the one that I enjoyed the most. Cool. Uh, Because of the 70s witchcraft thing. You know, the 70s witchcraft movies are just, there's something about them I, I just really enjoy. And I feel like the girl got what she deserved in this one. And I love the way she went out. And I don't know if I'm getting ahead of where you're at, but... No, that's that's fine. Yeah, her her death is, I think, pretty gruesome. The new girl is is just, I mean, she's she's picked on repeatedly, and her books are taken by the mom and thrown in the fireplace and um, burned. And and Wellington at one point, the dad takes Wellington on a ride to get rid of him, take him to a place to to be euthanized, and. Um, Wellington winds up showing back up, which is kind of interesting because they don't really explain how Wellington shows back up, but it makes you think perhaps Wellington's a, actually a which is familiar. Right. Maybe he was this girl whose name's Lucy. Maybe it was Lucy's uh, mom's familiar, or maybe it was it just simply escaped. We don't know. Right. But I kind of like that the answer's not given to us, that it's, that it's, you know, that question's unanswered. Yeah, no, I really like that too. Yeah, I tend to think that the cat is is a supernatural thing is what they're sort of leaning towards. Yeah, that, that's kind of the vibe that I got, and I respond really well to that. I mean, I, I really enjoyed that, too. And again, this, this is a 70s aesthetic. You know, you don't have to explain everything. And I think because of that, a lot of these movies, I know on MKR we kind of stick to the 30s or the 50s, 60s and all that. But when you get into the 70s and things get so unexplained and creepy and there's that – that's supernatural, cryptozoological, uh, you know, totally unknown, unexplained vibe. I love that. I think it's a great vibe to have in these types of stories. And that's, I think, why I really responded to this segment is because mm-hmm. you don't know, did the dad really do something to the cat and took the cat to a place where they do it quick and painless, according to the mother? 
did the cat escape? Is the cat more than just a cat? Is that a witch is familiar? Is it the mom? You know, who knows? And I think right. because of that, it makes the story more enjoyable for me. And I love how the girl gets it. <laughs> <laughs> it really is good. So, uh, Lucy, the, the, uh, the orphan is, uh, the dad's away and the parents are away and it's just the two kids there. Well, she goes out to little, I guess you'd, it'd be like a, I don't know if it's a summer home or if it's a, like a, a pool house or anyway, it's another building attached, like separate from the house, detached mm-hmm. from the house mm-hmm. that she's out there. And um, don't they call it the tea room? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And Angela, the, the mean girl sees the lights on and goes out to see what's going on. And when she gets there, she's seen that Lucy's drawn a pentagram on the floor with chalk Wellington's there watching and they trick Angela into stepping into the pentagram by, by just de- telling her not to be, sh- be sure not to step in the pentagram. Now, of course, the first thing she does is step in the pentagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she uses witchcraft to shrink her down to the size of a mouse. You get some uh, really, really not really effective, but pretty fun miniature work here. You know, I, I appreciated that too because I felt like they could have gone to some pretty poor green screen stuff, mm-hmm. but you could tell they did build a giant pencil. They did build a set for her to run around on, at least a very limited set for her to run around on a little bit to get that size difference. Yeah. It worked for me. Yeah, I mean for what yeah. it is, kind of some incredible shrinking man esque. Mm-hmm stuff there with the cat kind of reminds you of that a little bit now the extreme close-up of Wellington's face you could tell was somebody was holding the cat and they put the strongest lens they possibly could on to get <laughs> to get that extreme close-up but you know you yeah. do what you do right and i think it's important to point out in this one wellington isn't the one that does the most horrific thing wellington doesn't do anything in this movie yeah except I mean, he, he's just a companion Mm-hmm. That's that's all. It's Lucy winds up grinding Angela under her foot. I'm the big one now. You have to do what I say. And well, <laughs> and when she steps on her, it's the sound. Uh. It's the sound, man. It's like, oh, you know, I yeah. don't go around like stomping on bugs or whatever. But of course, you know, as a kid, you, you, you're kind of dumb and you go around stomping on things and whatever. And, and it sounded like, you know, what it would sound like if you stepped on a bug. That kind of yeah. grinding kind of, oh, mm. Mm-hmm. And then the mom comes in. I told you not to spill paint on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sees the red red stain. Yeah, oh. which there had been some red paint spilled earlier. So right, yeah. it's a nice callback. But yeah. I mean, that to me, that like I said, I love this bit the most. It's a pretty good ending. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's the sound, oh. the sound that gets me. Mm-hmm. The crunch. But girls disappear all the time, according to Ray Milan. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, he's not. He's still not buying it, you know. Which, that's fine. It's I, I, I'm right there with him. I wouldn't either. I would think, man, especially the way Cushing's acting. He's so squirrely, you know. This guy's out of his mind. I mean, who's going to believe cats? So he has to tell him a third story. To try to convince him. And this is the Hollywood story. Mm-hmm. This is the the one with um, Donald Pleasance. Who I love, by the way. And the listeners, if you only know Donald Pleasance from the Halloween movies, I mean, that's great. But you are doing yourself a major disservice because he is so good in so many other films, not just genre films, but just overall. He is such a good actor. And he looks like he's having so much fun in everything I've ever seen him in. And he's, he's always great in this. He, he is. And he's very Vincent Price in this role. He is. Even the way he speaks, the, mm-hmm. the way he affects his voice has that almost seven, yeah, yeah, the 70s Vincent Price kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. He's channeling Price, there's no doubt. Mm-hmm. 
they ever work together? Yeah, actually, they did. They worked together a couple times. They were in the Monster Club together. Oh, good. Now that song's stuck in my head. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> and they were in a movie called Journey into Fear together in 75. I don't know if so, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah, so they had um, worked together a couple times. Let's see, that would be before this one. So, yeah, he spent some time with Price. So, of course, he, he's able to channel Price the way that he is. Mm-hmm. And everybody would have seen oh, the Fibes sh- movies at this point, which is kind of what – well, it's sort of that in The Pit and the Pendulum, really more The Pit and the Pendulum uh, because there's actually a pendulum in this. And and uh, <laughs> Pleasance is dressed sort of like Price in that movie. Uh huh. Anyway, we open right up with him murdering his wife, who who is an actress who's in this scene with him uh, strapped to a table with a pendulum swinging over her. He has somehow replaced the fake blade with a real blade. And nobody's noticed at all. Nobody's yeah. noticed. It's like, come on. <laughs> yeah. And this real blade saws her, of course, in half and kills her. This is supposed to be taking place in the 30s, right? So did they – I don't know. I I have a hard time believing that nobody thought to check the big blade or later on there's some other – uh, the the, uh, the Iron Maiden sequence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good thing there's a fake back because these spikes will kill you. Well, why are they using real spikes? I mean, come on. Right. Anyway. And I think this film would have worked just as well if they had said it, say, in the 50s or 60s. You right. Know? Yeah. You know, when the Corman movies were being made, but put it in the 60s. I think it would have worked just as well. Setting it in the 30s was, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to think. What was it? 36? Is that right? Yes. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that when Bride came out of Frankenstein, 36? Uh, was it? I thought it was 35. Well, anyway, I mean, it's, 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 it, you know, it's in that area. So It really is. But yeah, you're right. This really feels more like it would have been at home in the 50s Price Post stuff. Right, right. He has, this guy has a mistress, and he immediately suggests that, oh, well, why don't you use her as the lead? And, you know, she looks a lot like my wife. And so they do. They sign her up, and the two... Go back to their house, to his house, and they're laughing about it. Immediately, they, they think it's it all worked. We're happy. Well, the cat, his wife's beloved pet, sees this and is none too happy about it. And there's our cat tie-in for their third segment. I did not like Donald Pleasance at all. Now, I know <laughs> typically the point of a lot of these anthology stories, somebody needs to be punished. And the little short stories within these pieces – it's pretty much the story of somebody being punished for doing something terrible, right? Somebody's getting revenge on somebody. Somebody's going to die because of something or other. Donald Pleasance flushes kittens down the toilet. <laughs> Which I'm not even sure how that actually works, how a kitten could go. <laughs> I mean, drowning them is one thing, but you flush them down a toilet? Can you actually, would they actually go? <laughs> I don't know, and I don't want to hear about anybody trying to see if it works because that was awful. I know the character's name is Valentine Death, basically. Okay, so I mean, he's not. A, he, you know, they, he's going to be a bad dude. He killed his they wife. Refer to him as VD. <laughs> they do, <laughs> they do. And he did just kill his wife a few minutes before. But when he flushes kittens, like, you've gone too far. If you don't get yours by the time this thing is over, completely redeemable. Yeah. By the way, the punchline in this story is a complete ripoff of a Robert Block short story, which I have to think the writers were completely aware of. I mean, line for line, that that punchline at the end of this story, there's a short story called Catnip okay. by Robert Block. It was in a Weird Tales story from March 1948. I just reread it yesterday. And right at the end, the very last punchline is the same as this, as this story. 
that issue of Weird Tales, by the way, I looked it up to see who was in it just because I'm a Weird Tales fanatic. Dude, you talk about all-star cast. Listen to these names that wrote stories in this one. Edmund Hamilton, Manly Wade Wellman, Clark Ashton Smith, Seabury Quinn, Ray Bradbury, Theodore Sturgeon, Algernon Blackwood, August Derleth, and H.P. Lovecraft. All in the same oh, magazine. Wow. <laughs> That's an issue of a magazine. That dude. is power-packed right there. That's... Mm. And Ray Bradbury. Did I say Bradbury? He you did, did the mention October Bradbury. Game. Yeah. Well, you yeah. mean. Yeah. And the October game. If you've never read. Okay. Bradbury could do horror. You think of him as fantasy mainly. When you think of Bradbury, you think of wonderful stuff, Halloween tree and, you know, all this kind of. But the man could do horror. And that story is chilling. Set on Halloween. And it's a fantastic little story. The October game. Check it out if you, if you got guys out there that haven't read it before. Well, you mentioned Manly Wade Wellman. I mean, you and I are huge Manly Wade Wellman fans. Mm-hmm. Huge fans. Mm. And then you mentioned Lovecraft, and I'm surprised we haven't talked about this yet. Lovecraft loved cats. Right. Lovecraft right. loved cats. I mean, he named his cat a terribly inappropriate name that we're not going to mention here, but <laughs> yes. he loved cats. And I mean, the cats of Ulthar and all of that, the dream quest of Kadath, the dream quest of Unknown Kadath. It's too early to say the word. Dream quest of Unearthed. I, whatever the dream quest that's yeah. it that's it yeah i mean all the all the cat stuff he loved cats so he he just did a short story and i mean a poem he, he contributed a poem to that issue but that's some great names so i found that i just found that just to get off topic for a second i thought that was really interesting but catnip by robert block is in that one and once again it's about a cat that gets revenge his mistress is a witch and a mean boy burns down the witch's house by flipping a cigarette but under her porch and it catches on fire and burns down and kills the witch. He had been throwing rocks at the cat earlier and, and a, kind of being abusive towards the cat. And the cat winds up after the place burns down, his mistress dies. The cat winds up following the kid and gets re- to get revenge on the kid. And it ends with that same exact punchline as this story. Huh? So straight up ripoff. So the, the writer of this story had to have known that there's no way. Sure. You know, somebody else in the cast that we didn't mention, John Vernon is the movie producer, isn't he? Mm-hmm. And John Vernon, I mean, if you don't know who he is by face, and I'm surprised if you don't because he's got a recognizable face, his voice. I mean, he's just got such a great voice. And, of course, he did some, you know, a handful of Clint Eastwood movies and things like that. I mean, very recognizable. And just to have him in this, too, as the producer who seems a little concerned that the wife died. Oh, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. Fine, let's save some money and keep making the movie. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, very Hollywood. Yeah, very Hollywood. <laughs> and I don't know if this is good timing or not, but he did the voice of Doctor Strange on the 1990 Spider-Man TV show uh, cartoon. And yeah, we're recording know, this the weekend of Doctor Strange coming out. That's pretty cool. I was looking through his, his list of movies. He did a lot of, of those 60s cartoons. He did voices mm-hmm. in all of those. The, yep. the the Thor and Captain America and all that stuff. Hulk. Yeah, he did a lot of voice work. But best known, like you said, for the Eastwood stuff in the 70s. and. Mm-hmm. Great voice. Excellent great voice. voice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, um, the cat winds up getting revenge and, and uh, Pleasance winds up dying a, a violent death. And, and then we'll come back to um, come back to Cushing, who's still trying to pitch his story. And, and it's just not, not working. You know, he's just not buying it. Just isn't having it at all. And it's pretty much it. This is the end of the story. Ray Milan bids him good night. Peter Cushing walks home and gets his. Yeah. 
the cats follow him, a bunch of cats, and run under his feet, trip him. He falls down the flight of stairs and dies. Uh, Sugar must have really been talking to the other cats to let him know what mm-hmm. he was up to. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. You know, um, I have a, a theory about this movie, and okay. I have a theory that will make this movie much better for you. Okay? So All right. my thought on it is Cushing is – he suffers from allurophobia. He has the fear of cats. He's pitching cats as as these villainous, evil creatures. But if you think about Cushing as an unreliable narrator, okay? Okay. Because it doesn't make sense that he's saying that cats are evil, and they're not in these stories. None of the stories he's saying are bad. The cats are are actually protectors, Mm -hmm. if you think about it. They're actually doing good things. Or just witnessing what's happening, yeah. Right. In the first movie, they're actually getting revenge for the woman being killed. In the second movie, he's just sort of a bystander, just sort of watching what's going on. And in the third one, it's, it's once again, an Avenger. Mm -hmm. Cushing's an unreliable narrator. He's telling these stories. He's believing one thing, but he's saying something else. So that's why the stories don't make sense, because he is sort of a squirrely guy who's superstitious anyway. He's reading these books on UFOs and things. The cats are actually heroes. The cats are actually good creatures. They do have a means of communication, obviously, and they take out Cushing because they don't want him to spread lies about them. They don't want him to spread the lies that they're evil creatures and all that. So that's sort of my take on it. And I think when you think about it like that, the cats come off as good guys rather than villains that that Cushing's trying to portray them as and you as a cat lover would appreciate the fact that the cats are actually good guys. I know that cats have been used for years as plot devices or uh, catalysts for some of these stories. I mean, you go back to, well, even like the movie, the black cat with Karloff and the ghost. granted, there's not really a lot of cat action in that. There's just that one scene, really. Mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe wrote about the cats, you know, Lovecraft's got the cat stuff. I know they've been around for a while. Like I said, sometimes when I watch a lot of these movies, I, I cringe when I see cat stuff happening because I always worry what's going to happen to the cat, and especially sure. the older movies. Once I get past that, and, and I was able to finally get myself to enjoy this movie, especially during that second segment, I'm glad I watched it. And, you know, I'll probably watch it again because it's Cushing. You know, you can't get away from just the awesomeness that is the Cushing. You know, I mean, he's just great. His performance is always solid. It no really matter what is. Whether he's Van Helsing, you know, and he's the Avenger himself, or he's somebody who's going to be taken out by some cats, you can't help but just watch him. Mm-hmm. He, he demands attention. And even in the scenes with Ray Milan, where Ray Milan's more in control or whatever, Cushing steals the scene. He does. Every time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not because he's being greedy. It's just that that's what his character is, and he inhabits that character so well. And he's so charismatic, and he's yeah. got that voice. It's that fantastic voice of his that just it just it just commands your attention. You know, mm-hmm. you can't help but like him. He's he's almost poetic in the way he sings his dialogue. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and overall, the movie is well done. It's well produced. The cinematography is by the guy who did The Wicker Man. I mean, it looks good. Every once in a while, you kind of mm-hmm. strain the credibility with the extreme close-up of the cat faces, but you know you do what you can do, and I'm glad they did that instead of forcing a cat to do something it didn't want to do. You know, right? So, so you have this beautiful photography, and the story it might take some beats from other existing things, like you were saying the uh, the the one story at, at the end, mm-hmm. but you know it's still pretty enjoyable. No, it's enjoyable for for what it is. For what uh, it is, it, when you put it into the hierarchy of of anthology films, it's definitely one of the lesser ones. Oh yeah, it's not, you know, I wouldn't put it up there in my top ten list by any means, but I think it's interesting. And as a member of that small segmented 
subgenre of cat films, it's an interesting film, you know, in that it's a cat film and an anthology film. Definitely worth watching, I think. Sure. Uh, one little tidbit that I ran across, there's a character named Maitland, Miss Maitland in this movie. This It said this was the fifth time that Subotsky had produced a film that had a character named Maitland in it, which is kind of interesting. The others are, and now the scream starts, the Price movie, uh, Tales from the Crypt, The Skull, in which Peter Cushing played Dr. Christopher Maitland, and City of the Dead, which was sort of the first amicus movie, Horror Hotel, mm-hmm. has a character named Maitland in it. So it's kind of funny. I guess he just really liked that name and he really liked cats. <laughs> kind of kept coming back to both things. Now, I've read that Cushing was not the first choice for this character. Do you know who the other people might have been? I don't. Okay. That would be interesting to see. If any listeners know, we'd like to know. Because, I mean, how, how can you top Peter Cushing? I, he, he's perfect. He's a pretty good fallback, for sure. I mean, <laughs> I can't imagine anybody better. He's the backup. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Overall, though, I'd recommend watching. But you're right. When you look at it with the other anthology films of the era and just overall, this is kind of towards the end of that particular wave, isn't it, of anthology mm-hmm. films? Yeah. So we're kind is. of kind of petering out a little bit. <laughs> no pun intended. But the anthology is still with us today. I mean, you had Creep Show in the '80s and Tales from the Dark Side in the '80s, and then even now they're doing the Monster the Club in the '80s. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> you know, I'm going to play the trailer for the Monster Club just to stick it to all the listeners so they can hear that song and they can blame you. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I love that movie, by the way. I really, really have For the right club. reasons or the wrong Monster reasons? <laughs> Both. <laughs> so, yeah, and I'd recommend it. But like you said, it. Hmm. And the cycle of, of anthology films is probably not one of the best. We know anything about the director or even how to pronounce his last name? I know that he did a movie a year before based on a serial killer. Okay. His name is Dennis Hero. Uh-huh. And he did a movie called Naked Massacre the year before, also known as Born from Hell. It's based on uh, Richard Speck, the real-life murderer who um, killed eight nurses in a house <laughs> well, one night okay. in Illinois and I think it was in 66, and they made a movie about that night and that act, and this guy directed it. And I think this was his last film he directed. The Uncanny was the last one in his uh, directing career. He didn't do much. No. Um, I think he had done some softcore or semi-pornography stuff before this. or (laughs) Really? Really pretty close to it stuff, so yeah. Yeah, I don't know much about him other than, I believe he was French. That's about it. And (laughs) the Canadian lived in Canada, so there's that French connection. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So, yeah, this movie, The Uncanny, was filmed in Canada, distributed from the rank organization. Mm-hmm. Oh, he produced The Park is Mine from 85, that Tommy Lee Jones movie. Hmm. Have you seen that? Seen. No. He's like a Vietnam vet who takes over Central Park. Okay. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Anyway. Yeah. Back to The Uncanny. What else is there to say other than well, we'd recommend it for a one-time watch at least? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's definitely worth seeing, worth watching, and I think it's fun. I think it's enjoyable for what it is. I, working with that much cat, that many cats, had to have been a, a challenge. Cat wrangling, and <laughs> could never make this movie nowadays. It would all be CGI cats nowadays because, yeah, I mean, you would mix have I think mix some real stuff with the CGI, but you definitely wouldn't have it made in the way this was, where you're slinging cats around physically. And it's probably a good thing. There is, I believe, the Italian movie poster for this. Have you seen it? 
I have. It's oh, fantastic. wow. That, that is um, a little bit more intense than what you see in the film in terms of violence and nudity. Yeah. Because the Italian it's, movie poster has a woman coming out of her dress. Yeah, it's, it's some false advertising going on there. It's like, I want to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, this was fun. I'm, it's, like I said at the beginning of all this, Larry, it has been way too long. You know, life just gets in the way. I consider you one of my closest friends, and just we haven't had a chance to chat. So I appreciate this, man. I totally agree, man. It, it was fun. And, and even for a movie that's not and technically the best in the world, it's still a fun film. It's it got was. some fun factor to it. It's got a great cast, and it's, it's worth watching. So, But as far as being on here, thank you so much. I always have a blast, and it's always great spending time with you. And we got to do it in person one day. Oh, someday, man. I'm looking at Monster Bash next year, fingers crossed. So, okay. All you know, right. I'm, I'm well, hoping. You, I'm hoping. Let me know sooner rather than later. I may have to try to make it back up there myself. Uh, we'll see. I, I don't think I've mentioned that on the show yet. So, yeah, listeners, I'm trying to figure out a way to make it happen. <laughs> All right. Master <laughs> so, Bash is always a blast. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Let's see. When's the last time we had you on here? It's been a while. So let's not wait nearly as long. Okay. Sounds like a plan. We'll talk about Tells from the Crypt next time. Ooh, all right. Done. Huge thanks to Larry Underwood for being part of the show this week. I, I will say it again. It's been way too long since I've had him on the show. Now, he and I have talked off mic a couple of times, and yeah, we are going to do that Amicus Anthology film, Tales from the Crypt, down the line. I'd like to do it sooner rather than later because it does have a Christmas segment, and I don't have a Christmas movie planned this year for the show, so that will be a treat. Now, check him out at Dr. Gangreen. Now, that's D-R, not spelled out. Just drgangreen.com or follow the link in the show notes to be up to date with everything that he's got going on. The fantastic films of Vincent Price series that he's still doing and still knocking out of the park, as well as information about the contest that he's running this month to get your hands on a DVD set and a t-shirt. That contest is running through Thanksgiving, so there's still time for you to get involved. Check it out. DrGangreen.com. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. I will take you to a place where my friends foregather. There you will find stories of such blood-curdling terror it will make your toes curl and your hair reach up towards the sky. He likes to take you by surprise. He likes to leave a very special calling card. It was the best blood I have ever tasted. He's giving you a very special invitation. Three stories to shock you. Chill you. Thrill you. And make you laugh. Everybody knows about garlic and steaks through the heart. Yes, we all have our cross to bear. I'm just a sucker, boy, yada. I'm just a sucker. You are one of his kind now. You have to be staked by your own men. Songs by B.A. Robertson. Don't you look down on me. Night. With a strange twist. The 
pretty things. The viewers. Tell me you're not going to let you go until you do. We must have our food. But remember, he likes to take you by surprise. You've been invited to the Monster Club. Come at your peril. Century Fox, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. For the sake of your sanity, pray it isn't true. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, Imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana Podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. 
And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. The Disney Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody for tagging along, being part of the show. Anybody who's a Facebook user, thank you for liking Monster Kid Radio. We're trying to get to 1,000 likes by the end of the year. And as of this recording, we have 992 likes. Eight of you. We just need eight of you to go over to Facebook.com slash Monster Kid Radio. Give us a like. Once we hit 1,000 likes by the end of the year, I don't know what the next milestone is. I don't know what we get for 1,000 likes, but uh, it's something that we're trying to do. So if you can help us out, we'd really appreciate it. You know, we also have a Facebook group that you can join and get involved with other listeners of Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen. All of this you can get to through our website at monsterkidradio.net. Links to our Facebook page and group. Our contact information, monsterkidradio at gmail.com or our voicemail line at 503-479-5657. That's 5MKR. You can also find links to every band that's appeared here on the show in the past. And a link to our Patreon page where you can become a supporter of Monster Kid Radio through Patreon. Big thanks to all of our patrons, by the way. I really appreciate the financial support you give Monster Kid Radio to help us pay for our web hosting and everything else that we've got going on here. And, you know, if we get to a certain milestone, we'll start bringing some new things, some new experiences to Monster Kid Radio. One of those things that we are already doing, kind of, sort of, is the spinoff podcast Married with Monsters. This is a podcast that I do with my wife. Now, it's supposed to be monthly, but life gets in the way sometimes. So this week, you are getting a special episode of Married with Monsters. Me, my wife, Brenda, it's over an hour long. Okay, actually, it's about an hour long. And we're talking about something strange. I'm just going to leave it at that. You don't have to do anything special to get the episode. Just stay tuned to Monster Kid Radio. It's going to go out on the Monster Kid Radio feed, so you can find it that way. In that episode, I'm going to make reference to my friends Scott and Tracy. They are the high muckety mucks of Disney, Indiana. Dear, dear friends of mine. And one of them is going to be here next week on Monster Kid Radio. We want guns. Now, the final chapter in the incredible ape saga. There it is, our wars. This is the hell my forefathers used to speak about. This background radiation alone will give us 300 rentgens an hour. The battlefield, a dead city 12 years after the ultimate bomb has been dropped. The prize, the right to inherit what's left of the earth. The contestants, ape against man. The most unbelievable showdown ever filmed. As the mutants, strange transformed men who live underground like moles, battle the apes to decide who will be master and who will be slain. They're getting away. Kill them. Murdered my son. We will smash the human and then 
We will smash Caesar! I don't want to have to remember my husband. I want to love him now. But we who survive create a new race. In the aftermath of his victory, the surface of the world was ravaged by the vilest war in human history. Climaxing the epic series which made motion picture history comes the last, the most spectacular of all the eight adventures. Out of the Forbidden City, they roared, to settle once and for all who had the right to rule the planet, ape or man. It's finally happening. We are finally wrapping up our five-movie journey through the Planet of the Apes franchise. We're going to keep it in the 70s next week when we talk about 1973's Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Scott has guided me through this franchise, and I've had a blast. Longtime listeners know that before getting into these films with Scott to talk about here on the show, I'd never seen these movies. I had never gotten into the Apes films, and it's been a treat. Will the film franchise go out with a bang? Well, we'll find out. Come back next week for that. We may be doing some other things with the Planet of the Apes franchise next year, so stay tuned for that as well. After Battle for the Planet of the Apes, we're going to keep our simian love going because we're going to have Paul McComas back on the show. And I know that sounds like I just called Paul an ape, and I'm not. What I'm talking about is King Kong. Paul and I have been talking for over a year about having him on the show to talk about the three Kongs. We're going to, you ready for it? You ready? Kong Pair and Kong Trast, the three King Kong films. The original, the 70s remake, and then the Peter Jackson remake. I cannot take credit for that pun. That's all, Paul. That's going to be a pretty big and pretty fun episode as well. So that's what's happening over the next two weeks. That gets us up to episode 296. What's happening in 297, 98, 99, 300? I have no idea. There's lots to pick from. Just stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net or our Facebook page to keep up to date. The American merchant vessel Petrox Explorer has just set sail from the port of Surabaya in search of oil. What they find will shock the world. We may be sailing into the history books. She's alive! You know, maybe my luck has changed. They will discover an uncharted island that is the home the most incredible creature on the face of the earth. A creature called Kong. Hey, you know what? Actually, let's swap the order of that. Let's do next week for the King Kong episode with Paul McComas. And that's because next week is Thanksgiving week for those of us who celebrate it here in the States. And King Kong screenings and Thanksgiving seem to go hand in hand. So, Next week will be King Kong. The week after that will be the Planet of the Apes film with Scott. Finally, before we wrap up this episode of Monster Kid Radio, I don't think she listens, but I still want to put some positive vibes out there into the pod universe or the universe overall. 
Back in 2013, on episodes number 40 and 41, we had Jackie Ray Naaman Jones on the show. Some of you might know that Jackie played Debbie in the original film, Manos, the Hands of Fate. And I know, I know, Manos, the Hands of Fate is one of those decisive, is it decisive, derisive? It's one of those films that people either really, really love or really, really love, but only if it's being rift by the mystery science theater people or rift tracks or whoever's doing it these days and i get that i actually have watched the movie straight more than i have watched it rift and i'm okay with that i actually really enjoy the movie for what it is for a number of reasons that may or may not indicate there's a problem with me but anyway monos is one of those important iconic films that has inspired a lot, whether it's riffing, whether it's spoofs and parodies. Uh, Steve Sullivan has two novels now inspired by that. I know there's somebody working on another Monos project. There's been Monos, The Hands of Felt. There's been a stage production. There's been so much out there done inspired by Monos. And I think that's amazing. And that the movies in the public domain means that anybody can really do anything with it. Jackie has championed Monos over the years and just embraces the love that this movie engenders and she's been a big part of keeping the monos flame huh? alive no pun intended Torgo. but she's really carried that torch and it's a special movie to her she's talked about it in her book growing up with monos the hands of fate which is a really good book i highly recommend it and you know it's just one of those things that it means a lot to me so when she posted the other day that her father passed it really kind of hit me in, in a way that I didn't expect. Now, I'd never had a chance to speak with her father or, or meet him, even though he was here in Oregon as well. See, her father played the master in Manos, and he reprised that role for the, I guess you could say, official sequel of the movie coming called Manos Returns that was produced here in Oregon as well. It's currently in post-production right now. I can't wait for it to come out. What was particularly devastating for me is to find out that Jackie learned of this passing while she was doing a book signing and podcast interview in Chicago. Her father here in Oregon, you know, he, she just wasn't there. And Jackie, if you're out there, if you're listening, and like I said, I don't think she is, but if anybody knows Jackie or talks to her, runs into her, or is friends with her on Facebook, give her a little love and let her know that you're thinking about her and the rest of her family. You know, we may have lost the master, but she lost her father. And that's, that's tough. I don't know how to go out on that. I didn't mean to end the show on a down note. So nothing but love for Jackie and her family. Nothing but love for you listeners for being part of the Monster Kid Radio experience. I hope you come back next week. Until then, remember that all original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song we're playing this week, Siam Cat. It's from the band Watang. It's from their album, Miss Wong. You can find them over at greencookierecords.bandcamp.com or on Facebook or just go to facebook.com slash watangsurf or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net and let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.